0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection, from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you I do not want to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is in righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. God.
1: So I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on your way to work in the morning and you can't put your finger on it, but there just seems to be a buzz of unrest in the air. Unusually aggressive teenager cuts you off around a roundabout. Um, you get a text, you get a couple of texts on your phone that say, Can you believe it? And have you heard the news? So you get to your office and you sit down and you open up your email only to find that a friend has forwarded you uh, an email that apparently spread around the Old Miss campus from the chancellor's office entitled Parking Solution. Now, you got to be living in a hole if you don't realize that students, when you come back, parking gets a little crowded here in Oxford. And you can imagine what it's like for them being on campus. But Chancellor Boyce has a solution. As you begin to read the email, though, you kind of have to catch your breath at exactly what it is that you're reading. Because the solution is this. The Chancellor has found funding to put up a multi-level parking garage right in the center of campus in the Grove. Yes, that's correct. We're going to tear down the grove and we're going to put up a rather large uh, red and blue uh, structure that could hold as many cars as the, as the university can recruit freshmen, okay? Now for a moment, set aside your initial revulsion uh, at that particular idea for a second and imagine yourself just a couple hours later. You have a meeting on the uh, square and you're walking there and you happen to meet another friend from church who uh, stops you and says something to the effect of like, ugh, I have never been less motivated to start a Monday. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, did you read that email that went around today about what's going on on campus with the chancellor's office? To which they respond to you very quickly, you know what, honestly, I am so tired of all of the student politics and the campus drama that goes on. I don't even have the energy to listen to it. Now pause that conversation there for just a moment and think about how you're making sense of that conversation. I would argue, first of all, you, you can be certain that by the end of that day, regardless of what the deal is, you will be hard pressed to find anyone in the state of Mississippi that does not have an opinion about what just happened, state fans included. <laughs> News like that is just too big not to talk about, is it not? But the second thing you're thinking about is, what is going on with my friend here? And there's really only two options. Option number one is, they just haven't heard. They've not come across the news. Because surely you would have reacted to it had you really understood exactly what that email said. The second possibility, though, is they think they've heard all there is to hear about campus politics. And so, therefore, it's their sort of boredom with it all that makes them not even want to listen you might realize to yourself, actually, their symptom is their disease. (laughs) That is, the very reason that they're bored with what's going on on campus is because they won't hear the big news. So, look, I've been in this community now for almost 23 years in Oxford, and I've come to believe that when it comes to our community's approach to Christianity in general, I feel like Christianity holds root in our imagination almost in the same category that we hold A place like City Hall, bear with me for a second. You know, City Hall is kind of a big deal, but mostly because it takes up so much space on the square. You're really glad that it's there and they often can come through in a pinch, but you only visit it when it's absolutely necessary, right? And when you get there, you feel good about yourself. You feel fine about your city officials, but it really doesn't last very long after you hit the door and attend to more interesting fare in your day. In other words, there's a part of me that wonders if Christianity has simply become ordinary here. You know, Flannery O'Connor, the great folk Southern writer, would say that the, the South is Christ-haunted. And what she means by that is so often faith here becomes a matter of predictability and therefore almost mundane. It's a matter of course because it's constant presence. It's just here. You certainly can't avoid it if you tried. And so I have this premise that I want to explore this semester, and it's simply this idea. The further you dive into the text of the Bible, the less able you are to take it casually. Does that make sense? And you can tell it from the way in which this, this new message that Paul is preaching struck its original hearers. And isn't it strange that when all of a sudden people's reaction to Christianity when they first heard it was either on the one hand to give your life and your absolute devotion to it, to the point of death, or to kill the person who was preaching it. But nowhere in Scripture do we have someone who hears the Christian message and responds to it, well, like, oh, will neat, That's not the reaction. So now, put yourself back on the square with your friend for a second. My guess is, in that moment, you would breathlessly blurt out, look, don't you understand what happened? They're gonna tear down the grove and put up a parking garage. My guess is, your friend would look at you and be like, whoa, 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 wait, what, what? Start over from the beginning. And that actually is exactly what I want to do this semester with the book of Romans because my belief is, is that Christianity is only as ordinary as our avoidance of it allows us to be. And I would submit to you that once you get curious and you go back to see exactly how Paul is unpacking this this basic architecture of the Christian message, you will find something in the gospel that is radically terrifying, yes, but also radically transformational, and in the end, something that's radically comforting. And I think this is exactly what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 15 as he introduces the gospel to this people, a people that he's never visited, by the way. He only knows them by reputation. But in the book of Romans, he's going to lay out the foundational structure for the gospel. And because it's of the gospel, it's about really the entirety of Scripture, and saints throughout the ages have leaned on it for such. So I want to unpack this into three headings this morning that really is one sentence broken down into three parts. Paul has big news that he's not ashamed of about how to be on God's good side. Three points. Let's start with that first one that Paul has big news for us here. What's going on in verses 1 through 6? Verses 1 through 6 is a very typical ancient Near Eastern greeting for a letter where the author, after identifying themselves, tries to give you some idea about what it is that makes them tick. Paul says it very explicitly in verse one. I am an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Paul sees his identity, his mission in life, his own self-understanding as being devoted to this thing called the gospel. The word gospel is a little Greek word called euangelion. It's made up of two sort of sections of Greek words. The first one, eu, is the prefix that crea- it means the word good. It's where we get the word eulogy, what do you, a eulogy is a good word at a funeral that you say about the deceased. Euangelion means a good something. A good what? Well, angelion is how we get, where we get the word angel from. And I realize that as soon as we say the word angel, we start to think of, you know, wings and people with white flaming hair, swords, whatever in their, in their hands. But that's not what Paul would have associated with. For Paul, an angel was simply a messenger or a herald. Think about this. It's a little bit hard for us who grew up in the internet age, but there was a day when in order to get news about the world, you had to rely upon people who would stand up in the middle of the town and cry out about what the news was. Maybe there was a famous battle that had been won by your people or lost. Maybe there was some uh, changes in leadership from where the emperor was. Perhaps it's some kind of other civic life change. Either way, it was the responsibility of the angeloi, the messengers, the heralds, these angels who were there to bring news about something that happened. Then you get verses 8 through 15 where Paul looks and says, because of this identity that I have, and from verses 1 through 7, I cannot wait to come see you. I'm there to impart some spiritual gift to you. I'm anxious about it. It says in verses 9 and 10 that he prays about it all the time. In verses 13 and 14, he talks about how the gospel is for everyone. He even mentions the gospel, by the way, which was probably enough to tickle the ears of most of the Jewish people. But then he says this gospel is also not only for them, but it's for the Greeks and the barbarians as well. It's for the the wise and the foolish. And my suggestion is is that right in this introduction, Paul tells us that he cares very deeply about two things. And in many ways, they end up being the two central themes of what the whole book of Romans is about. Number one, theme number one is how is it that sinful people can be made right through the grace of God that's offered in the gospel? That's the first theme of the book of Romans. The second one though, is about what it means to be the people of God. And that now, since Jesus has come, that has totally changed, (laughs) especially from where the inertia of your heart is going to take you. Now, why do I put it that way? Well, in many ways, those overarching announcements that Paul is making in this introduction is exactly what the Bible wants to get across in the whole book. But notice something that we noticed that we mentioned back a couple weeks ago uh, when we were studying the book of Acts, that what Paul is coming to bring to these people is good news. He is not there to give good advice. And in my opinion, if you can distinguish those two things, you can get a lot of understanding about this because every other world religion, I don't think anything separates Christianity from other world religions more than this. In order to be a part of any other religion, there's a list of things to do. You want to be a Muslim? Here are the five platforms of being of Islam. You want to be a Buddhist? Here's the pathway to do whatever. In other words, there's always a thing that is done. But in Christianity, the message is not good advice about what to do before it comes along and says that something has happened something in the past. There is an event that is so huge and so mind-blowing that it has to be listened to. Other religions are just about good advice. How to have a fulfilled life. How to live your best life. How to be rich. Uh, Maybe how to, I don't know, how to have well-behaved, non-embarrassing children. I don't know. But Christianity, though, is not advice. Christianity is news. It's an announcement which I really kind of want to push a little further here, because there is nothing that will make your Christianity more ordinary than good advice. In other words, for most of us, I think, and this certainly was true for me, I think I grew up thinking of the gospel as kind of like one, one self-help program among the smorgasbord of other self-help programs one could follow to live in a, a fulfilled life. I mean, I know you may have chosen Eastern meditation, but I chose Christianity, and that is true for me. That is not the Christian message, by the way, even though Christians oftentimes speak that way. What actually is we realize that along the way, we developed a Christianity that was primarily about us, (laughs) about what we are supposed to do. And and mostly about what we are supposed to do in terms of our responsibility of keeping me and God in good stead. Does that sound familiar? And honestly, we hear good things, but we didn't hear the good news. And for that very reason, I'm submitting to you this morning, faith is inert. It's it's entirely avoidable if it's just good advice. Because that's how we take, take good advice. Maybe I feel a little bit bad when I don't pray, sure. I wish I did more. But when it really comes down to it, I'm working on it. (laughs) That's how we approach Christianity. But here's the deal. In verses 1 through 15, you see Paul as a man obsessed. And it's not just because he's religious like that, which is how we write him off. It's because of the news. It's this powerful news, the content of which, the content of which has set him on an entirely different path of life. That's the message. Now, again, the takeaway from this point is sort of the the fact of the gospel. What about that content? Well, that brings me to the second point, and that is the fact that Paul is not ashamed. He's not ashamed of this gospel. Look, everybody agrees, and this is worth highlighting on your electronic device or writing in your Bible, whatever, That verses 16 and 17 are thought by almost every commentator to be the theme of the book of Romans. And Paul begins it by saying that he is not ashamed. There's a Scottish pastor by the name of James Stewart who said, you don't say that you're not ashamed unless there was a time in the past where you were tempted to be ashamed. Does that make sense? So what is Paul saying? What were those particular temptations? Well, by the way, that's an interesting little spiritual diagnostic. (laughs) If you feel a temptation to be ashamed and draw away from what the gospel is saying, be a little encouraged because it likely means you're hearing the true gospel and not some sort of false alternative. But I digress. What is it, though, for for Paul that we would ever have been ashamed of? Okay, well, for the purpose of this, go back to those two themes that we said Paul was going to mention in the entire book. Let's take that first one. This fact that like sinners can be justified by a holy God purely through grace. That first reason, if you think about it, is going to tempt you to be ashamed because of the way it's going to change your perception of yourself. This is what happens. We are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because the first things that Jesus says to us in his radical message are anything but flattering. I have to admit, first of all, that I am utterly and completely helpless. This is the way we're going to talk about this semester. We're going to to study the fact that, according to Paul, nothing we ever do is enough. We're going to spend a lot of time on that word, enough, because I think all of us are working furiously to be enough in about 50 different areas of life. And in order to understand the gospel at first, Paul's going to come along and say, it ain't enough. And it's worse than that. I think a lot of times we console ourselves, especially when we messed up the most, where people will come alongside and say, well, look, they don't worry about it. I mean, you're basically a good person. Gospel's going to be like, or not. (laughs) There's some unflattering things that we have to admit to, which end up becoming the very things that make us ashamed. Now, look, here's my premise here as I've been thinking about it because we live in a town, we live in a town <laughs> that prides itself on our little Hallmark movie appearances, which means that the inertia of this town is pushing us to put on a good face, is it not? And, 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 and it means that, therefore, the alignment of this city is trying to pull us away from the very things that Jesus wants to reveal in us and about us. I love this town. I absolutely love this town. would love to die here, if at all possible. But there's something about our place that makes us tempted to be ashamed of it, because what we do is we start speaking of our faith as if it's helpful. We go to Bible studies, but we we keep a nice, steady detachment from it. It's able to sort of remain detached from it. We avoid confessing sins to those around us, which the Bible kind of commands us to do in the interest of appearing, you know, together. Not everybody's business. What's happening? You know what's happening? You're being ashamed. There's a sense of being ashamed of the gospel. We don't want to admit to those things. But the second thing that's running through the book of Romans is this redefinition that Paul is giving to what it means to be the people of God. See, prior to Jesus' coming, the people of God was primarily understood to be a racial designation. Does that make sense? You were Jewish, therefore, you were part of the people of God. There was an ethnic sort of uh, standards that were there. It It was a cultural thing encrusted in with a lot of these observances of very specific laws about dietary things and whatever else and holidays that were very special. In other words, the people of God were the special. They were the singled out people. They were the ones that were, using the word of our day, privileged. But look, follow Paul's logic, because if what the gospel is pushing you to admit about yourself is accurate, then salvation is only going to be by grace alone. And if the gospel is only and salvation is only by grace alone, then invariably you have to conclude that it can be for anybody. For for the Jewish people, it was Jews and Gentiles. And they said, what? What? For for, for the slaves, it was like for the slaves and for the free. What? In that society, and ours quite honestly, it wasn't just for men. It was for women too. What? It was scandalous to all of a sudden come to the gospel and realize that there's an instinct for absolute equalizing underneath its teaching. You couldn't look at each other in the same way. The gospel is that great equalizer, is it not? (laughs) Now look. Look. Just like the, the, the admission about yourself of sin and helplessness, boy, this is going to cut across the grain of this town, and this is where I get in trouble. I realize that for many of us, we were schooled in the great state of Mississippi, which had unpublished laws, which established those people that are in and those people who are out. And you never really know what those things are until it gets challenged. But I do think that for evangelicals, we must admit, we must admit <laughs> that our true colors were uncovered in the 1960s when we, in mass, opposed the civil rights movement. Now, I know what you're thinking. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Mitigating circumstances, it was different. But I know, I know, I know, I've heard it all. But here's the thing, when all of a sudden our first knee-jerk emotion is not to respect this equalization of all people, we are running contrary to the direction of the gospel. Period. There's nothing else that can be said on that one. Then, 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 <clears throat> we got to Old Miss, and we turned what should be an innocent, fun experience of Greek fraternity and sorority membership, we turned it into a badge of, a badge of pride. And it wasn't just pride, it was also exclusion. We let those in who were, who were cool, or she was cute. She was so cute. Or, or, or he, he, he's just a stand-up guy. He got in, but we excluded others, or they're from a good family, whatever we used, right? My point is though, when you spend that much time in that man mindset, accepting a gospel on the basis of pure grace is going to force you to reinterpret how you define what is in and how you define what is out. And you're gonna be, be tempted to be ashamed. Um, the people that do addiction recovery efforts will, will tell you that one of the things that makes it hard to recover from addiction, especially alcohol is uh, oftentimes if that person is married is the other spouse. You ever heard this? AA began to notice that after people would go through the recovery, when the one alcoholic got better, they would divorce. The divorce rates were out of the, off the charts on the other side of recovery. You're like, why well, does that make sense? Well, what they don't realize is over time, the the, the non-alcoholic spouse became this very effective rescuer for the alcoholic spouse. So when this person gets well, this person doesn't know what to do with it. And all of a sudden they divorce, they drift apart because I needed them to be that way. (laughs) My premise this semester is to the degree that we married ourselves to the city of Oxford, and all of its loveliness, it's going to keep us from from acknowledging what the gospel is trying to get us to acknowledge. And there would be a lure out there in front of us, tempting us to be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul is not. And I think the reason why he's not is because of my third and final point. And that is because he understands that he has discovered the way to get on God's good side. (laughs) Now bear with me for a second, because when I was growing up, this was kind of where the sermon ended, you know? Hey, you know what? God doesn't want you to be ashamed. Um, Apostle Paul was not ashamed. I, as the preacher, am not ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed either. Let's pray. (laughs) And that was the end of the sermon. That's not where this whole thing ends, because here's the point. The gospel, in many ways, can become very easily just another morality tale about how much I wasn't measuring up. But look at verse 17, there's a wonderful phrase that packs a punch. When Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, let's look at that very carefully because it's very easy to read that phrase, righteousness of God, as God's character trait of being righteous. Does that make sense? God always does the right thing. He's God, therefore he's righteous. That's very true, it's just not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is—is he saying righteousness is the quality of being right with someone? Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say, for instance, that you're paying your monthly bills and you write a check or go online, whatever, to pay your mortgage. There's a sense in which, when you write that check and the bank receives it, you are right with your mortgage lender. All your debts are accounted for for that particular month. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is talking about, us being right with God. He means a quality of being on God's good side. And so, boy, this is a great question. Foundational, no no more foundational questions could you ask than this. Do I assume this morning that God and I are are in good stead? Am I on God's good side this morning or not? And if the answer to that question is yes, upon what basis do you make that claim? Why do you assume that? What foundation am I building that conviction upon? And if, however we answer that, of how we feel on God's intentionality, says something about how we've dealt with a fundamental problem. And that fundamental problem is, is that there is a gnawing in the sense of every human soul that I am not right with him. I'm gonna make the case this semester that most of the output of your life, words, daydreams, ambitions is a discharge from trying to deal with that aching sense of not being right with God. There was a, when I moved to Oxford in 1999, there was a song that was always on the radio. It was a one hit wonder uh, by, uh, the band's name was uh, the New Radicals. And the song was called, you only get what you give. What a positive message for a pop song, right? Really, uh, really a wonderful tune. I listened to it over and over again. He's got a hilarious song because the song is about a guy who is trying to get his life together, but it's fallen apart, but he's trying to put on a good face about it. And in the middle of the song, he's got this line where he says, you know, we're flat broke, but hey, we do it with style, right? And then he says, but you know what? God is flying in for your trial. (laughs) I love that line. In other words, I feel guilty all the time. And now God himself is flying in to a pen special to actually bring the law against me. And I thought, wow, from someone who I have no idea their approach to faith, what an incredible admission that there's a gnawing sense that everything's against me. And God himself has flown in to bear witness against me about the way that I've not measured up, about how I am not enough. Isn't that the thing? Isn't that the thing that gnaws inside of us? But now here's my point. Take the next step. Because in my opinion, the connection that we so rarely make is that as long as that guilt goes undealt with, we have planted and nurtured the seeds of ordinary Christianity. That's my premise for the whole semester. To the degree that you have not resolved that problem, you're living an ordinary Christian or on your way there because I'm exhausted by performance-driven work in my life the more I'm loaded down with with very soulless obligation, the less interested I am in that work. The work I take no joy in is hard to do well. We live by that on our staff here at the church. If I assume myself to be in good stead with God and that rightness somehow depends on my work, I'm not gonna hang with that work very long. That's the conviction, that's ordinary Christianity which is why I think our faith is so much like City Hall. (laughs) Think about it. I mean, I'll go when I have to, when I'm mad at how my life is going. Maybe when I'm feeling like the one in charge has let me down, I'll show up then. But otherwise it just occupies the most peripheral parts of my daily life. Y'all, that's not Paul. Paul is obsessed with this and it's because the righteousness of God has come along in different categories. Ordinary Christianity will always spring from works righteousness, always, from a mental frame that is still preoccupied by your performance and how well you have or have not done. That's what nurtures it. That's what grows it. You don't know why? Because it keeps Jesus on the periphery. And when Jesus is on the periphery, he's manageable. I can treat him like an object. And you know what objects are? After a while, they're boring. Is that what's happening here in the South? What if there was something though that could change the way I thought about that? Uh, The the friend of mine was telling me about a comedian who has a whole bit where he talks about a class that he took when he was in college called uh, Computers and Networking. (laughs) And he tells this whole story about going to class and he listens for the first day and he was like, I understand none of this and decided he just never would go back, right? So he never attends the class all semester long. There's students here that are triggered by this. until a week before the final exam, and he has this sudden crisis of guilt where he's like, You know what? I don't know. Maybe I should go in, throw myself on the mercy of the court, try to take something on the test, and who knows what I might be able to pull together. So he shows up to class. He sits down in the seat, and the guy next to him, as soon as he sits down, leans he over and goes, Hey, do you think the professor is going to give our exams back today? And the committee was like, Did we already take the exam? <laughs> he had totally missed it right? He missed the whole exam. He was sunk. So, so meekly and, and shamefully, <laughs> he goes back to the professor to sort of plead his case. And all of a sudden, the professor says something amazing. He looks at him and goes, i tell you what I'm going to do. I, I'll be gracious to you. I'm going to give you the grade that the person who did the worst in this class got. The comedian was like, oh, okay, so do I get a zero? <laughs> And he goes, no, actually, the person made the lowest grade just barely passed. So guess what? You just passed. And he was like, I did it. Somehow he came through with a passing grade, and everybody laughed and laughed and laughed. Here's my concern. We oftentimes think that the gospel is simply about pardon, that God pardoned what I had done. But here's the deal. Pardon is simply, I'm not going to give you a zero in the class. The gospel comes along and says, I'm going to give you a grade that you did not earn, that somebody else did. And the resulting joy that comes from that is going to completely transform your life and the way you think about everything. Here's my point. (laughs) The gospel comes along and says, you have been come and given the rightness with God, but that rightness is not something that is achieved. It is something that is received. It is revealed to you. What if the gospel did not bring a change in you but brought a change about you in the way you look at the world? And here's my hope. My hope is at this moment you have a thousand questions. And if you have a thousand questions about what that means, come back. Stick with me through the study because Romans has got something for you. I promise you. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to seek and to find, to ask questions and to be taught so that in the end, we might learn in ways that we never knew. Father, that it might not be so ordinary. That we might be enlivened. And, 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 and that we would be known as a fellowship of people that loved the gospel and loved grace. Would you put that in us? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.